Welcome, everybody. I'm Richard Krauss. I hope you're well, that you're staying happy, healthy, and safe. It's a big show. Let's get right at it. Later on, we'll get to know best-selling author, actor, audiobook narrator, and playwright Chris C.C. Humphreys. He's written 22 novels of both historical fiction and fantasy, including his latest, Someday I'll Find You. It's a novel about a spy and a pilot who fall in love but are wrenched apart during World War II and must find their way back to each other. That's a little bit later on. First, let's meet John Klassen. He's the creator of the number one New York Times bestselling, I Want My Hat Back. He's also the illustrator of the Shapes Trilogy, Triangle, Square, and Circle, all by Mac Burnett. The Shapes Trilogy is now an exclusive television show on Apple TV Plus called Shape Island that premiered earlier this year globally. His new book that we'll talk about today is a deliciously macabre treat for folk fans called The Skull. John Klassen joined me via Zoom from Los Angeles. Were you always drawing? Yeah, I think so. I don't think I knew what it was for. I don't. I wanted to be. I, I wanted to be in animation. I went to school for that in Oakville uh, after high school because um, I thought that was the only job you could get for drawing. I didn't know anything else. I knew about illustrators and comics people and stuff, but I thought those people were like special somehow. You don't get those jobs. You have to be. You have to fall from the sky somehow to get yeah, that yeah. job. And so the idea of a regular place to draw that seemed like an animation studio. It took a long time before I even considered books as a job. But it was always, yeah, I think if I couldn't draw, I don't know what else I would have done because I can't do much else. But it was so do what you do, what you know you can do. And that was drawing for me, for sure. Well, I love that you were pushed in that direction by watching the extras on uh, some of the movies that you loved, uh, like The Lion King and Aladdin and The Little Mermaid and that sort of thing. Yeah. And, and you saw people doing it. And you said, well, if they can do it. Well, if they, I'm not sure if it was a matter of like, well, if they can do it, but it certainly was the first time I saw a job that involved drawing. I think like you wanted, mm -hmm. I wanted a job with a desk and a parking spot and everything else. But then <laughs> I was like, God, I can draw. I can't, I don't want to do anything. What am I supposed to do? But then here was that mixture. Here was a place full of people drawing. And then you liked the movies too. You know, you would watch these movies all the time. We were, I grew up in the, in the late eighties, early nineties when Disney really hit its stride again with that mm -hmm. stuff. These movies were everywhere and you're like you can work on these you can make them and they go everywhere like all of that just seems so attractive and also i never had any interest until i started doing the books in my own style for whatever that is well, i was going to ask you about that because we'll get to your style in just a second but before you got to the books mm -hmm. uh you worked uh on films like kung fu panda 2 yeah. uh, you worked on Coraline, which for yeah. my money is one of the most beautiful movies <laughs> ever made i love that movie and oh, the great. way that it looks uh, but they have, to my eye anyway, they don't have much in common. There's, the, the, I, I wouldn't see that your style uh, uh, was obvious on either of those. No, Coraline, I think maybe more than the other ones, because there was such a strange way they made that, that I sort of cut my teeth on that movie and found out even what my style was beginning to be, I think, yeah. on that one. I was drawing so much, and that's what it is, is that you're just working so much that you begin to find your your weird idiosyncrasies, whether you want to or not. Um, but there's such a huge group making these things that you do. Yeah, you get um, your job is partly to join the style of the movie. But if it's not, even if it is defining it a little bit like it was on Coraline, there are hundreds of people making it that also mm -hmm. are working stylists and like they have their own. And so at the end of it is a very democratic product. And that's really fun. I always liked that. I like working in a group and I like seeing what comes out of a group effort. Um, and so for a lot, it's surprised me that I had anything 
to say stylistically later on. And actually it, it came out, it got more and more strong to the point where I thought, I'm not even sure I'm, I'm supposed to work at studios anymore because I'm just being so grumpy about not doing things the way I want to do them. <laughs> books, books will spoil you that way for sure. And Coraline, you must have worked on that for years. It's a stop motion animated film, and they they do one minute a week or something. So that must have taken a very <laughs> well, long. time. I was on design for that. I like it does take that that long to animate them. And the movie was I was on pre production even for about a year before we started shooting, and so it was about three years total. I think I was wow. on that in Portland. Um, yeah, a huge. But that's what they take too. Most of the movies, even the CG ones, um, they do take that long, which was another reason why books were so interesting because they're faster. And even if you love the movie you're on, uh, it, you can you can get a little weary of a, of, a, of a movie after three, four years. It takes a lot out of you. And when did you make the leap into books or why, I guess, did you make the leap into books? I think, well, Rockiness I was- Rockiness aside. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's nothing, it's not no reason, but um, I started doing them in the evenings as a freelance job, just as out of interest. I was doing my own illustration work and posting it on websites and things, and um, it was getting simpler. I think, in a reaction to the movie work, is very complicated. You're designing sets and lighting and all this kind of stuff, and it's very involved drawing. And I wasn't strong at it, I knew I wasn't. I was learning, but I always tacked toward the simpler stuff, which doesn't really fit movies very much. Mm. And so I, I think in the evenings, as a reaction to that, I was trying to figure out what I could, what I was going to do on my own, not even for a job, but just out of interest of, of, you know, as an exercise. Um, but it was always coming out simpler. And I really liked drawing lettering. And so whatever came out, whatever was getting posted on the sites sort of looked like simple picture books. I don't think I had that in mind, but it did look like that. And so I started getting hearing from art directors um, and editors at picture book places. And finally something caught and I, I got to make one. You're listening to John Klassen on The Richard Krauss Show. His book, The Skull, is available wherever you buy fine books. Um, and as soon as I started it, um, everything just sort of fell into place in my mind about how the size of these things and what you can leave out, which was the most interesting thing. Like mm. it turned out you could leave out almost everything and still get a complete <laughs> feeling book. And that just means like narratively, but visually yeah. too, it just felt like a, a, a form that was built for a mission. And that was so interesting, especially coming from animation, which is a maximalist sort of, let's throw everything at the audience because we can and we should form. I was just so uh, relieved to be in this other thing, even just for a minute. And so I got a book agent while I was still at the studios and said, I think I, I think I like this. Like, is this a job? Can I have, a, can I have a, and he's like, well, we can figure it out. I had a few years left at the studios on contracts at DreamWorks again. Mm. And I had about two years to kind of build up some work and do some books on the side before I stopped working at the studios and um, did books full time. Well, less is more so often. It, it's such a cliche. But yeah, really true. Sometimes cliches are, are true. <laughs> they're because they're true. Yeah. yeah. Less is often harder. No one believes mm -hmm. that when you show them like one bear on the page and said it took ages, but it's, but it can be to, to cut it down to something that still makes sense. And is really simple, but it's an interesting process. I like it best. Yeah. And you work digitally, but with watercolors. Is that, is that sort I, of what works? It toggles between book to book. I think that, um, Digital work, when it's purely digital, I don't think it looks great when it's printed. Some people can do it. Some people can pull it off and it looks fine when it's printed. And there are ways of figuring that out. For me, whenever I did it in digital processes and then it was printed on paper, something looked wrong. It looked a little dead. And so I try to start with real materials, quote unquote, like watercolors or graphite or whatever makes a mess, whatever can give me some happy accidents <laughs> and look a little alive on the page. And then you sort of use computers as like a dark room to 
bring in what you've done and process it. So you bring up your textures or you, your, your, your darks and your lights or your colors or whatever it is, needs everything needs adjusting, but you sort of, you make all the pieces um, increasingly, I'm trying to make all the pieces analog style. Yeah. And so here's another cliche for you. Uh, <laughs> perfection is the enemy of good. And I, I think that when I hear you speak about graphite and things that make a mess and lead to happy accidents, you're not looking for that finely honed digital feel. You want something that feels alive, that doesn't look perfect because really what's perfect? There's nothing no, in real it, life that is. It's Yeah, it's relative. Again, I do see some people pulling off a very clean look and it's interesting and that's where their strengths are. But for me, I think I rely a little bit on something being a little off. It doesn't, if it's, cause I can't do, I know I can't do it perfectly. And so if it's deliberately feeling a little janky, then that, there seems to be energy in that for me. But picture books, again, with that saying with like perfection, they're so short that that is the curse of them though, too. As long as you're working on them, you can change half your book in an afternoon if you feel like it, that's how short they are. And that amount of freedom to do it is like, is horrible sometimes because you can always be changing. It's not like a novel where you're like, well, I'm three years in, I can't go back. But with a picture book, you really can change the whole thing in a space of a day. And that sometimes that works. And sometimes, you know, it's a prison that you can't get out of. <laughs> and where do your ideas uh, come from? You've got uh, a number of these books out. They've been, uh, uh, some of them have, or one of them uh, at least has been uh, adapted for television. Is there a connecting thread to them? Maybe that's it. Is there a connecting thread other than design wise right. uh, between them? I think I've started to realize that they're a little bit about wish fulfillment in a very general way. Um, my first book, I Want My Hat Back, is about a bear who's lost his hat. And um, he's asking the other animals about where he, where, if they've seen it. And he asks a rabbit who's wearing his hat. But by then, the bear is so much in the rhythm of the thing that he's he he misses seeing the hat. And the rabbit lies and says he hasn't seen or stolen any hats. And then when the bear realizes that much later in the book that not only has he seen this happen, the rabbit lied straight to his face about it. He runs back and not on paper and not even in direct text, but pretty sure he eats the rabbit right then and there. <laughs> and like, I don't think that's the way you should act. And certainly it's not the lesson you'd want to teach kids, but these books aren't about lessons necessarily. It was sort of about just how you feel in a given situation and what you sort of wish you could do in a very general way and an expressive kind of way. It just feels like you just if you were in this clean situation and like if you were a bear and that you know what i mean like it yeah. was more just like that's how i felt when that particular if that thing happened to me and you can apply that to all sorts of general situations and that idea of sort of not making the books about what you ought to do or where the way the world should work but just about recognizing how we feel from time to time and just laying that out and examining it without a solution or without um judgment i guess and just be like you too right you guys feel this way like that on its own is justification for a book for me and i think increasingly i didn't i don't think i knew that like what i'm talking about abstractly mm -hmm. but as i make like four or five or six of these things it's like i think that's what's going on <laughs> <laughs> we begin this segment of my interview with john classen as he explains the inspiration for his book it was a folktale that i read um in a library in alaska very far away from austria um, but I was waiting to do an event and they had a book. I, I usually hang out in the folktale sections because they're so random and I like them best. And you can usually find some weird, if you're in some far out flung place, they usually have a couple books you'd never seen before. And so that's yeah. where I was. Um, but this book that I read it in was called Ghosts and Goblins. It was just a scary kind of short stories for kids. Um, but I always like those because they have to be short and clipped, as they say. 
And this one was called The Skull. I saw it in the table of contents. And I was like, The Skull is a pretty good title. Let's go check that out. <laughs> um, and I read it very briefly, very quickly, because I had to do the event and then close the book, put it back in the library shelf and went to do the event. But then I thought of it for like a year after that. Um, and I was so interested in just the premise of it. And the more I thought about it, the more I thought I could draw it too, which is the second step to analyzing something like that. But I'd never adapted a story myself. And so I wrote to the library to ask them, uh, you know, can I have this book? And I didn't even have the title. I told them the story and they found it somehow. They're mm -hmm. miracle people in libraries. Um, but they did and they sent it. And it was very different from how I'd remembered it. I'd changed basically the almost the whole second half in remembering, not on purpose. I thought it was a different story and I was shocked to read the original because I'd read it so quickly. But I liked what I'd changed. I remembered my, old, my other version that just sort of had sort of formed itself and I thought that was worth trying out. And so all of it being Austrian, and I've tried to sort of generalize a little bit in terms of where it is, where it takes place and who it is and everything like that. If anything, I think that the book itself is probably based on the Niagara Escarpment. <laughs> <laughs> um, but like, cause that's where I was from, that's the woods yeah. to me. And so, uh, but yeah, the but the story itself uh, is, I think it's a lot of fun. It's a girl who runs away from her house in the middle of the night for reasons we don't know. There are different versions of the folktale that explain it's a, it's a wicked aunt or it's a stepfather or something like that. The usual fairy tale reasons. But I like much better leaving out why she runs away um, and sort of leaving that up to the audience to figure out. But the important thing is, I think that we agree that she should have run away. And she does. And she runs into the woods for a whole night and finds this house with a skull living in it. Um, and they become friends over the course of the day and him giving her the tour of the big house. But then he reveals to her that there is a headless skeleton living in the house, or at least he comes at night and chases the skull around. He needs help with this and would she help him? And so she says, yes, she will. <laughs> and that's sort of the high action moment of the book. Well, I love uh, the idea behind this and the idea of the bear eating the rabbit and all of that <laughs> because you're introducing elements of darkness into children's books. And I think so often we are told, oh, children, you, you, we have to be so careful about everything that we say. We can't expose them to anything. But I think yeah. kids have a higher tolerance, though, for darkness than we often give them credit for. They have a higher tolerance. And also, I think that when it comes to subjects like that involving death, or hauntedness or ghosts and things. They're not taking it personally yet. They have questions mm. about death and our theories on the afterlife and things that are very simple. They want to know them the same as they want to know how clouds work or you know what I mean? Or like how deep is the ocean and people die, right? Like that's and avoiding that and making it sort of this weird third rail, I think does a disservice and ends up making death into, I don't know, it feels a little bit like death is treated kind of catastrophically in our culture anyway, and but everybody dies. And so it shouldn't feel like someone lost or someone, um, you know, that it doesn't happen to everybody. Mm -hmm. It happens to everybody. And so treating it and learning how to talk about it, but even just treating it like a, like a story element too, dealing with it and its, and, its, and its mysteries and the things we don't know about, because that's important too, to talk to kids about things we don't know yet. And if there are mysteries surrounding death, that's a, that's a reason in itself to tell a story about it. That's very intriguing and they're interested in it. Um, I think it's it's really rich. They always have questions about it. And they're not, you know, some of them, it, it is scary and some of them it isn't. But that's the other thing. I remember working on Coraline and Henry, the director, Henry Selleck, getting an interview about it afterwards because it's a scary film. Yeah. And they were asking him, you know, is this movie for kids? Is this what is pretty creepy? And he just said, well, who's your kid? 
do they like scary movies? Because it's for them. <laughs> and I love that answer because these books, the more you work on them, the more you understand that you can't capture an entire demographic. You're not going to get every kid from four to 12 or whatever it is they're aiming for. You're listening to John Klassen on The Richard Krause Show. His book, The Skull, is available wherever you buy fine books. You get your group. You get your people who do like your book. It's not going to be every kid's favorite book, but you might get a couple kids who it is their favorite book, and that's the best. And so... To say, well, this isn't for kids, this is for kids. Who's your kid? Do they like scary stories? Because it's for them. That's I like that very much. I like talking to specific ones and making books for them. Because, yeah, you try and grab everyone, you grab nobody, I don't think. Well, you've got a relationship now with Apple TV+. Plus. The skull be uh, translated into a television show or a short film? or I don't know. I wrote it very... This was the first one that I wrote, like... Usually the picture books even have a film in mind that I start with. There's a specific movie in most of them. I want my hat back. The first one didn't have this. Um, but the second book, uh, This Is Not My Hat, was uh, Psycho was on my mind very much. The, the structure of Psycho and how he, it's a guilty run from something you know you did wrong. But also removing the main character before the story is over. And that weird void that that film has after it's like, you can't believe what your brain feels like after she's gone. And that there's a there's a few pages at the end of the, the that book where the main character has been vanished. We don't know what's happened to him, although we have we suspect. And I love that empty space. And then the third book, we found a hat I based on, or at least I started a lot with Treasure of the Sierra Madre, the old Humphrey Bogart movie. Yeah, and like yeah. people in the desert finding a treasure and just all of a sudden everyone's eyes narrowing at each other because what <laughs> who's gonna get this thing? That whole feeling of being out in the I love that. And then um for this one, for the skull, I thought. I didn't watch it again. I usually don't rewatch the movies I have in mind because I don't want to like, usually you've bent them, you know, and mm -hmm. you can use that bented version. Um, but I thought a lot about Rebecca, the Hitchcock movie. I, th yeah. I think about Hitchcock's just so, you know, there's so many great ways he told stories and left things out. And he was just such a great storyteller. That it's fun to think about his stuff. But just that big sweeping giant house feeling and being on, on your own in there and something's there, but something's not. And there aren't any ghosts in the skull, but that, that atmosphere, that mood, mood is so important with picture books, as I say, and it's what I try for even more than a story, I think, at the end. But I, yeah, movies like that, I think I had that one in mind, just a big title over, over top of, you know, that big sweeping thing. The Skull was supposed to feel like a movie, even though you can read it in about eight minutes, I think, but you're supposed to, <laughs> I paced it out like that. I tried to, for sure. I think I came to Rebecca for it because I'd been reading about Paul Thomas Anderson and Phantom Thread. And apparently he was thinking a lot about Rebecca and I love Phantom Thread a lot. And even that one, like that weird, odd, that relationship that happens immediately. As soon as the sure. two characters meet, they understand each other and they know that they are in it. And that's how the skull sort of felt to me, even in the initial story was these two characters who meet and like right away, they, they are taking care of each other. There's no... You don't explain why it's basically like structured like a love story, but you don't mm -hmm. explain why they love each other. That's just that's unexplainable. You just say that they do. And then we're watching them be that way. And I hadn't seen that in a children's book, at least not quite that same way. And I was interested in figuring out how to tell it without really explaining it. Um, yeah, those two movies, Rebecca and <laughs> Phantom Thread, great source material <laughs> for a children's book, but hopefully we pulled it off. I love that so much, John. Thank you. What a pleasure to speak to you. Oh, you too. Thanks so much for having me on. That was John Klassen, illustrator and author of The Skull, a folktale for kids, currently available wherever you buy fine books. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Richard Krause, and thanks for coming along for the ride with me today.
Let's meet best-selling author C.C. Humphreys. He's written 22 novels of both historical and fantasy. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Richard Krauss, and thanks for coming along for the ride with me today. Let's meet best-selling author C.C. Humphreys. He's written 22 novels of both historical fiction and fantasy, including his latest, Someday I'll Find You. Here's the story. When Billy Coke steps onto the streets of London one December evening in 1940, he has no idea he's stepping to his fate. As Hitler's bombs come close to burning the city down, Billy meets the woman who will change the course of his life, Elsa Magnusson, a musician from Norway, but also something more, a spy in training. Escaping the Blitz for three days, she and Billy drive, quarrel, conceal, reveal, and finally fully fall in love. Cece Humphreys, join me via Zoom from Salt Spring Island. I usually start these by asking uh, about a book, a formative book that that influenced your writing career, but I'm going to take you back even further. Your mother said that she knew that you would be a storyteller from the moment of your birth. How so? Oh, oh my goodness. Well, I, I still consider it a slightly disturbing thing to receive this information from your mother when you're about five years old, because uh, it, it was actually couched in slightly different terms. Um, when my mother, my mother started talking to me uh, about something one day, I was yeah, probably no more than five. And she said, you, you know, I feel I knew you from the moment you were born. And I said, oh, yes, how so? And she said, well, when you were born in your first cry, I heard my father's laugh. And, uh, and you know, I mean, as I say, thinking back in, over the years, it's a sort of weird thing to tell a five-year-old kid. And, <laughs> it, it, it became, and, and the storyteller side was because Carl Halter, my Norwegian grandfather, was a major storyteller. You know, like, like everyone in, in my family, all four of my grandparents and my dad were actors and, and the men were all writers as well. So they were all storytellers. And Carl was a storyteller extraordinaire. Um, it was only later, of course, that I found that reference more disturbing because my mother wasn't saying it entirely out of love for her father, right? Uh, because my father, as we'll probably discuss, her father rather, as, as we'll probably discuss, uh, had a somewhat checkered past. Uh, and so, so, yes, but it was an interest, interesting beginning to my storytelling life, for sure. Well, I can't let the checkered past comment uh, go. So tell me a little bit about the checkered past. Well, you know, I, I mean, with this book, the, uh, the, this is, is in so many ways my most personal book. I think it's the one I've been building up to writing while I wrote the other 21 of them. Um, <laughs> that that uh, because, you know, even though it's not my parents' story, it's not my family's story per se, there is there's huge connections and there's huge flows underneath it. And it was one of the reasons I had to delay writing it because of the, the darker side to the story, mm. which the, though, even though, you know, my parents, you know, like so many of that generation, uh, so I'm getting slightly emotional here, but stood up to be counted. Um, you know, my mother, as soon as she saw the Germans walk down her high street, she said, I'm fighting this. My father, as soon as he knew war was coming six months before war broke out, uh, volunteered, to train as a pilot and, and became a, the fighter pilot, you know, as, as Billy, my character is in the story. So they both fought, but, you know, as we know, war is a complicated, very complicated issue. And, um, my grandfather, 
and I'm not going to make any excuses for him because that's not what I'm about. But I'm trying to, I, any character I depict, I have to understand who they are, Mm -hmm. even if they're monsters. Um, My grandfather uh, chose, as many Norwegians did choose, to side with the Germans. So there was this, my mother, the resistance fighter, uh, under her father's nose, basically, fighting the people that he was supporting. And he was a very clever storyteller, as Mm. we talked about before, and a writer. And he became a a propagandist for them, a war correspondent. He went to the Russian front, with was embedded with the Norwegian Legion, fighting for the Germans at Leningrad and all that. And, you know, and went to prison after the war for it. Was this a story that was common knowledge within your family, or was it something that was pushed to the background? We don't talk about Grandpa very much these days. Well, that was true. I mean, that that did happen. There were some people who, I mean, most of the people shunned him. My uh, And one of the reasons I delayed writing this book uh, was, I think, I mean, building up to it for sure, but also because um, my great my, sorry, my aunt, my mother's younger sister, who also escaped from Norway and, and went into uniform with the Royal Norwegian Navy, she lived until three years ago and she died at the age of 104. So I, um, you know, and she was smart, like my mum, right to the end. And um, she would not have wanted that discussed. You're listening to C.C. Humphreys on The Richard Krauss Show. His book, Someday I'll Find You, is available wherever you buy fine books. So even though, as I say, it's a fiction and the character in the book, Wilhelm, is not my grandfather, Carl. He's not an actor, for one thing. He's just a propagandist. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, that's still, you know, because of, conversations like I'm having with you, this stuff would have come out. It is dirty laundry and she would not have wanted washed in public. Let's go back again. So that's talking about the book. Someday I'll find you. We'll talk about that uh, a little bit more. Uh, But so your mother says, I hear, you know, my father's voice in your uh, cry or his laugh. Uh, That's how I knew you were going to be a storyteller. When did you first realize it? Richard, I've been telling stories all my life in one way or another. You know, coming from a family of storytellers, you know, the, that, that, that curse of the blood, as it were, you know, <laughs> the, the being, being, you know, because I'm an actor as well, as you know. Um, the, uh, I was the kid, and, and I, I spent, you know, uh, I, though I was born in Toronto, I grew up in Los Angeles till I was nearly seven. And I was the local kid who organized the other kids into games. I said, right, you're going to be, you're going to be the knights, you know, the knights of the round table, and we're going to be the invading barbarian, or you're going to be the gunslinger, and we're right. going to have a shooter. You know, I was that kid. And I would just get everyone doing that stuff. So in a way, I was, I was telling stories from the word go. I mean, my, one of the first photographs that exists of me is in a Zorro outfit, right? So, <laughs> so uh, anything, particularly if I could have a sword in my hand, I was happy. So, so that was storytelling then. And then um, I didn't really do much in, in, in a concrete way at school. My English schools were very sort of, you know, it was about Latin and grammar and stuff. Mm-hmm. There wasn't a lot of creative writing going on. <laughs> Um, but then I started, I got into acting in my sort of mid teens and discovered, you know, that, as I say, that curse of blood. And so, uh, and even then I was always writing little bits and things, but, but, you know, something I discovered later on and and what I teach now when I teach about writing is that I didn't understand the process. I thought it had to be good straight away, you know? And so, so when I realized that my stuff after the initial enthusiasm of the idea wasn't like the heroes I was reading, 
I abandoned it, you know. And I kept on, that was a pattern that played out over the years as my acting career took off, because I was pretty successful in my 20s and 30s, particularly. Um, you know, I, I, I would start things and stop them. Mm-hmm. And it was only when I discovered, really, uh, you know, I, I, I actually finished something, you know, rather than abandoned it. Uh, I finished a play, and the play won a competition, uh, and they, they gave me 500 bucks. So suddenly I was being paid to be a writer. And, <laughs> and, but, I, but the plays were, like, to me, I, I considered, you know, a novel was a mountain to climb. Mm-hmm. But a play was like a hill. I could get up that. And so I wrote three plays before I... Um, actually thought, I've got to write this novel. It's been bugging me for years. And, and, and finally, after six years of thinking about it, sat down and wrote The French Executioner. And that began my writing career. Six years uh, to get to the point at which you, you start writing this thing. It's formulating in your head, I guess. But you talk about the fear and uh, the fear of maybe it not being as good as William Conrad and the other things you were reading. Uh, but, <laughs> and who is? <laughs> I mean, yeah, well. <laughs> but uh, you talk about the fear, but was there another epiphany for you? Because a novel is a much different thing, particularly a historical novel. Yes, very different. Um, well, how do you overcome the fear? Well, I, I, I mean, as I say, I, I, I sort of teach this stuff now. And, and, and what you do each time is, is you sit down and you engage with the story. It's there's always there's always something to be done. You know, you start writing, and I, I come up with I came up with this ridiculous phrase years ago. I, I sort of gather my students together and say, "Listen, I've got to teach you the secret of writing. Quick, don't let anyone else hear. The secret of writing is writing is writing, right?" And I realized that that, that I mean, it it sounds facile, but it's absolutely true. You you know, of course, you can think about all sorts of things, but when you're actually sitting down and writing. It kind of happens, mm-hmm. uh, and and if you just let it happen, and you remove the words good and bad from your vocabulary, and just write it, write that first draft. It's not good or bad. It's not compared to anyone. It's just there. You've got a story, and then you can start to apply some critical faculties to it. And I mean, I'm I'm summing up something that took me years to figure out. Um, you know, and it's not that I don't sit down some days and go stare at a blank screen and go, oh, how do I do this again? Yeah, but because I've done it for so long now, I gradually just start doing it. And that's, that's how you overcome the fear. You sort of, uh, you, you defang it by just saying, I'm just going to write something and see mm-hmm. what happens. Did your work as an actor teach you anything about breaking down a story or looking at a character a different way than perhaps uh, you might have had you never stepped on a stage or in front of a camera? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. The, my, my being an actor has affected everything, uh, mm-hmm. in terms of my storytelling, uh, you know, not, I mean, not least that, that my stories are very character driven. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and I know that sounds a bit odd, but, but it, it, it's, you know, some stories aren't, you know, some stories are much more about atmosphere or some stories, historical fiction, particularly all about the period or whatever. But for me, uh, I begin with character. Uh, character. I, I I have this thing. I call it kamoka, and I get I get students to chant it like a tribal chant, kamoka. Uh, but it actually it's it's something that is almost acting one hundred and one, which is characters' objectives meeting obstacles creates action. I do that all the time, and and you know what does this character want? What's getting in the way of him getting it or her? Uh, you know what what is. What, what, you know, how do they achieve that? And it actually is almost like a sh- a way into any scene. Mm. And so I can start a scene really not knowing where it's going to go. And because of this desire 
And this is the same with acting. You know, you, you walk onto that stage. What do I want? Uh, how do I try to get it? Oh, this has happened. What? How do I adapt to that? thing happening. You're listening to C.C. Humphreys on The Richard Krauss Show. His book, Someday I'll Find You, is available wherever you buy fine books. In the new book, Someday I'll Find You, uh, there is a mix of intrigue and romance. Tell me a little bit about uh, the initial idea. The, one of the characters is loosely based on your grandfather. Uh, so tell me about finding this mix of romance, the intrigue. There's lots of action. It feels uh, kind of to me like movies that they used to make like Casablanca where there's a lot oh. going on, you know, where there's, there's intrigue and, and there's all sorts of things happening at the same time. Well, it's no coincidence that the, 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 the you know, the, there's two protagonists and one of them is called Ilsa. Mm -hmm. So any Casablanca fan will go, ah, I mean, I've probably <laughs> seen it a dozen times, you know? Um, and in fact, I reference it in the book because uh, he, Billy, the, 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 the Canadian pilot, um, you know, is, is thinking he's seen Casablanca, which came out mm -hmm. in 43, right? He's seen it on a screened on a tent wall in Malta. <laughs> and, and he thinks, you know, that, yeah, of course, you know, that Ilsa was, was okay, but she doesn't hold a candle to my Ilsa, you know? Um, <laughs> well, go going back to your, I mean, your question, it, it's quite hard to tease out those. I mean, sometimes, sometimes, you know, a story comes in a flash, or an image or or a character um but but other times with this one this this is absolutely had the longest uh, gestation period of any book i've written mm. in that in in some ways i was thinking about it when i started when i heard the stories at my father's knee you know my i didn't hear many stories from my mother because she was a spy right so she was very tight-lipped about all that stuff yeah. and also it was in Incredibly traumatic what she'd gone through, um, which is one of the things I learned. So much. I learned so much about them. You know, my, my dad's been dead 40 years, my mum 10. But I've learned so much more about them as people. You know, we tend to regard our parents as these, you know, they couldn't really have had a life because youth is all, you know, and, and you, you think back to what they would have gone through. And, and that has been incredible for me. Um, so, so I think the story began really there and in my parents' interactions with each other, in, in how they were. Um, uh, my, my partner, Kat, who's a bookstore owner, she says, I really feel like I've got to know them, you know, and particularly your mother, because she was harder to read. And so to bring her out in the way I have, um, you know, the, the, the romance of it, um, I'm, I'm fascinated by, by how we fall in love with people. Um, you know, and and in times of stress like that, I mean, they meet in one of the worst days of the Blitz in London, mm -hmm. December the 29th, 1940, when Hitler tried to burn London down. They meet on the streets. And for him, it's what that what the French call a coup de foudre, you know, a lightning blast. He just looks into her eyes and goes, oh, you know, this is and, and it's it's she's cooler. She doesn't quite, but she re recognizes she's attracted to him. And and so exploring that about how how people actually get together and then and then in times of war, of course, the external pressures of, you know, what do we do? Do we just casually see each other? They haven't got time. They haven't got time to do any of that. They've got to decide quite. And that's why they go deep quite quickly in, in revealing their pasts, which are. You know, she's got the past of this father. And I have to point out that, that the father is not a major, he's a sort of minor major character rather than a focus of the story. Um, but he's an antagonist in a way. Um, but, uh, but you know, how, how they react to things, you know, how they, 
how they make their choices in the moment. And, and they reveal a lot of themselves because they realize that they've got three days to discover if this is just attraction or if it is the love that they've been searching for. And then they know they're going to part possibly never to meet again because it's war, right? And they're both going into very dangerous professions. Um, so, so they have to decide, is this, is this going to be worth clinging on to something to hold on to through everything that comes? And, and they decided it. That was CC Humphreys on the Richard Krauss show. His book, Someday I'll Find You is available wherever you buy fine books. Big thanks to all my guests. But of course, the biggest thanks goes to you for listening. I'm Richard Krauss. Stay happy, stay healthy, stay safe, stay weird. And we'll talk to you again soon. Mm -hmm.